welcome to Trinity Dallas. We pray that this message will be a source of encouragement and hope in your life today. Enjoy today's message. Wonderful. Yes, y'all may be seated. Worship team, we love you guys. Thank you so much. You did such a good job. You're awesome. And no, you can't keep Jack Barnett. She's coming back home. Well, it's so good to be back here. Uh, I was here uh, last year for this awesome conference. Thank you, Pastors Joe and Nancy, for having me again. I really appreciate it. And it must have meant that last year wasn't too terrible that you decided I could grace your stage one more time. One more chance. But it's three strikes, I'm out. <laughs> and uh, of course, huge hello to everybody watching online, C3 Victory. Sam and Ada, what's up? Good to, well, I can't see you, but you can see me, and that's almost like me seeing you. I'm glad you're with us. I want to read a, a couple of passages of Scripture, and then I'm going to jump into what is perhaps uh, offensively simple of a message, but hopefully will hit us in the heart tonight. Is it okay if I bring something simple, but hopefully effective? Good. Come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8. Apostle Paul was writing to a church in the ancient Roman city of Thessalonica, and we're going to read verse 8 and then verses 19 and 20. He says this, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. One more passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 11. Peter says this, the end of all things is near. Now, don't panic. This is the same guy who said that to the Lord, a thousand years are as a day, and a day as a thousand years. But nevertheless, the end of all things is near. We're in the last age. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all else, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, and Peter here is just giving some classifications of spiritual gifts, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The title of my simple message tonight is this. It's Go Again. I know maybe you've gone once before, twice before, or what might feel like a lifetime of going, but the encouragement for us tonight is that we would go again. Now, all of us have participated in something or done something in our lives which we have decided, in fact, we will never do again. Places we've been that we've decided we're not going to go again, movies we've seen, foods we've tasted that we've decided we do not want to experience again. I had one of those 
Recently this year, my wife and I went away for our anniversary and we went to one of those fancy, fancy Michelin star restaurants. And the first course at this restaurant was sea urchin. Have you ever tried sea urchin? I don't know if that was on the forbidden food list for the ancient Israelites, but I'm pretty sure it was. And if it was, there was a good reason for it because sea urchin is disgusting. <clears throat> and I'm tasting this sea urchin, which tastes like salty, pasty seawater tongue. <laughs> and it tastes like that because it looks like that. It literally looks like an orange tongue. And I'm eating it and I'm looking around this fancy restaurant as everybody is enjoying their first course, first course of sea urchin. And I know for a fact that the smiles on their faces are lies. since been back to that restaurant twice and I have requested the replacement soup instead of the sea urchin. <laughs> Here's one thing that I'll definitely never do again. If you ever let me babysit your toddler, I promise I will never leave your toddler unsupervised with a small object. <laughs> I know that's a bad idea because I've experienced it personally. I've got two children. Winston, he's eight years old. Never put anything in his mouth. Never had to worry about it. Mabel, she's the neck tattoo. I decided it was a safe move because she, you know, I'll always love her. <laughs> Mabel, however, she always put things, in, it's not an ex-girlfriend, I was just clarifying that. <laughs> Mabel always put small objects in her mouth when she was a toddler. It was a habit for her. So one day we were sitting on, I was sitting on the couch, she was playing on the floor and I'm watching TV and she finds this little bead. And at this point I figured out that Mabel is in the habit of putting small objects in her mouth and so I look her right in the eye and I say, Mabel, do not put that bead in your mouth. And then I went back to watching TV. As every responsible father would. 30 seconds later, I look down, the bead is gone. I'm looking all around on the floor for the bead. I'm digging in the sofa for the bead. Where's the bead? I'm like, Mabel, did you put that bead in your mouth? And she just looks me with her chubby two-year-old little face, kind of shakes her head timidly. <laughs> I'm like, Mabel, where is the bead? Did you put the bead in your mouth? I'm like opening her mouth and looking around, confident that she has put the bead in her mouth. Mabel, I'm gonna ask you one more time. Did you put that bead in her mouth? No, daddy. Mabel, where is the bead? Nose. <laughs> she had shoved that sucker so far up her nose. It took, a, it took one of those snot suckers to get it out. So you can trust me with your toddler. I will never leave them unsupervised with small objects. <laughs> There's just some things after having experienced them one time, we know that we'll, we'll never want to experience that again. Now, if you and I had experienced what the Apostle Paul had experienced, I am quite confident that even if we were the most courageous type of Christian, we would not want to preach the gospel once we got to Thessalonica. And the reason I feel confident about that is because of what Paul experienced in the place preaching the gospel before he got to Thessalonica. And that place was Philippi. Now, some of you would be familiar with Paul's experience in Philippi where he preached the gospel by a river, made some converts, started a church, in the home of a woman named Lydia. And Paul's camping out in Philippi and he's preaching the gospel, making more converts, until one day he cast a demon out of a slave girl whose owners were upset because she made 
money for them by telling people's fortune. And as a result of that, Paul and Silas were severely beaten, the Bible says, with rods. Now, my daddy whooped me. I grew up in a good southern home. You guys looked frightened when I said that. Is that, is that can we not say that anymore? Spare the rod. Yeah. Okay, so I got whooped. But I'd never been beaten severely with a rod. That's like beyond my experience. It's probably beyond most of yours. And then Paul and Silas were thrown into the innermost cell of the Roman dungeon. That was his experience as a result of preaching and living in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ in Philippi. And yet the very next place that Paul went in Thessalonica, he starts boldly proclaiming the gospel again. And not even just with minimum effort, but with his whole life. I don't know if you caught it when we read that first verse, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. The ESV says our own selves. Now let's just consider for a moment how absolutely brazen this is. It is one thing to carry on with quietly sharing the gospel when people are responding violently to it. That is bold enough as it is. But it is another thing entirely to keep giving your whole self to the gospel when you have experienced the undesirable cost of doing so. What Paul could have done is just come quietly into Thessalonica, share the gospel with a few people there, and leave the burden and responsibility on them to believe it and then spread it. But that's not what he does. Him and his companions boldly preached the gospel to many and then hung around to keep investing in the people who were believing. He didn't just quietly recite the script. Paul was all in. This is like the method acting of discipleship. This is Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. This is Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight. This is Shia LaBeouf in that weird Just Do It motivational video he made. Paul is all in for the gospel. That's what he's saying. When we came to you, we didn't just recite the script. We gave our whole, they gave more than the minimum requirement. And that's because Paul understood that in order to effectively give people the gospel, you have to give yourself. That is, after all, what God himself has demonstrated by coming to us in his son. I don't know if you've ever thought about this fact that before Jesus came and inserted himself into human history, it's not that there wasn't already good news. It's just that there wasn't yet good news for us. But irrespective of whether or not there was yet good news for us, God himself was already good news. In fact, Paul even refers to the gospel here in this verse as the gospel of God. In other words, the good news of God. Now, why is God in and of himself good news? 
Well, because God is triune. God is Father, and He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit, and He is co-eternal as the triune God. In, inseparable as three in one, indivisible as three in one, yet distinctly three in one. And in and of Himself, for all of eternity, God has been enjoying His life. That life is not static like would be the life of a one-in-one God. That life is dynamic as would be of a three-in-one God who has eternally been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is shared in life and holiness and love. That's why the Bible says, by the way, that God is love. The Bible doesn't say that God can love or that God has a propensity to be loving. The Bible says that God is love because He is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and He's never not shared His love amongst Himself. So before you and I even came into existence, God was already good and He was good news in and of Himself. Yeah. You see, God did not need to learn how to love. God did not need to create anything in order to have something to love to then know what love was. Love was not a concept that God could kind of abstractly understand, but only then really experience once he made you and I. No, God all by himself for all of eternity has always been eternal life and life that is marked by eternal love. So apart from us, God was already good news. But in order to bring the good news to us and to bring us into the good news, he had to come. And that's what the incarnation is all about. And in the incarnate Christ, God was joining himself to humanity and redeeming humanity so that anybody who comes to him would themselves be joined into the life of God. But it was the sharing of the good news that was very costly. Because as part of the incarnation, is the suffering and the death of Jesus. And so what the incarnation teaches us is not that there was all of a sudden some new good news. What the incarnation teaches us is that sharing the good news is costly. Therefore, to give people the gospel many times means embracing whatever it might cost in order to do so be it our pride or whatever else. Now, just as somewhat of an aside, I think that one of the main ways that we try to dodge the cost of sharing the gospel today isn't in what we're unwilling to do. It's in what we're unwilling to say. But we are so resistant to the cost of sharing the good news of Jesus in this postmodern Western world that we've even tried to make it sound like doing so without saying his name is more spiritual. There's this saying, you've probably heard it before, it's attributed to a great man named St. Francis of Assisi, and the saying is, preach the gospel at all times. Use words only when necessary. Now, in my own personal and very humble opinion, I think that there are two issues with that quote. Number one, 
It's a total load of tripe. Number two, St. Francis of Assisi never said that. Not a single one of his biographers record that. And in fact, they depict a much different kind of man than someone who would say something as nonsensical as that. Because the gospel is something that inherently must be spoken. It is news after all. And God doesn't have very much confidence in your charades abilities. You see, the gospel is what God has already done for people through the incarnation of Jesus, his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So you can't preach the gospel without words because the good news is fundamentally not about what you do for others. It's about what God has done for them. And what I'm getting at tonight, I promise there's a point to this aside, is that it's the words today that really introduce the cost a lot of the time. Because when you say what you believe, now all of a sudden you have introduced a standard. And now those actions or those deeds that we were so confident about a moment ago, now they've got to measure up to something specific. Is it possible that the reason we want to share the gospel merely with our deeds and not with words is that it's the absence of the words that keeps the cost of the gospel on our own terms? Is it possible that the reason we're so selective with who in our lives knows what we actually believe is that then we get to determine when and where and how much we represent the one that we believe in? You see, to preach the gospel effectively many times requires more than words, but it never requires less. Don't miss the fact that the reason Paul was treated so poorly in Philippi is not because he said please and thank you everywhere he went and tipped his barista really well. And yet how often do we minimize our Christianity and our witness to Christ as being just 10% nicer than the rest of people? That's not what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The invitation comes with a cross. And it's not in the fine print. It's the first sentence on the invitation. Cross. Right there. So there is no such thing as a costless discipleship. Rant concluded. Paul and his companions, they saw the giving of themselves as part of giving the gospel of God. They didn't see it as going above and beyond. They saw it as giving what's obvious, not just for the starting of a church, but for the growth of the church. And it was an obvious thing to them. Why? Because it's what Jesus gave. Jesus gave himself. Without Jesus, there is no gospel. But because God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have life. That's John 3, 16. It's exactly the same train of thought that Paul traces here in in 1 Thessalonians. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. So just as the sending of the Son was grounded in God's love, so also you and I, not just reciting a message, but giving our whole lives to the man, giving our whole lives to Jesus himself that is grounded 
in the love that God has poured out into our hearts. And that love, by the way, is connected to, to the way that a mother feels about her infant, the way a mother feels about her child, how she would do anything to bless and nourish and help and sustain that child. That's the kind of love that Paul has in view. And that's the love that they gave to the Thessalonians. And this they did while having every reason not to. After pain and suffering and intimidation in Philippi, Paul was still determined when he got to Thessalonica, I am going to go again. Now, I'll make some application of this in just a little bit for what this looks like in our lives. But first, can we just ask the question, are we giving the minimum or are we giving our lives? To give the minimum is to operate at the fringes of the church. It's to resist the role that God has placed you in the body to play. It's to downplay the significance of being one part connected to many. And it's so tempting, isn't it? To downplay the significance of being one part of, among many. Because what the world offers us is, is independent significance, disconnected significance, unapologetically making our lives all about you. And that's, that's about as satisfying for the desires of our soul as is cotton candy for an empty stomach. But we feast on that cotton candy again and again because the temptation is just so attractive. But what Jesus offers us, in fact, what Jesus even commands of us is interconnected significance. Significance that comes from our attachment to him and our attachment to one another, to the church, which is his body. That, by the way, is not an analogy. Paul is not using the body as a metaphor for describing what the relationships amongst church people are like. He doesn't say that the church is like his body. He says that the church is his body. So you can have no more significance as a Christian than the significance that comes by being connected to the people that are sitting in this room around you right now. In this life, temptations will always come to move serving of Jesus to the periphery of our lives. But true discipleship is keeping him and his purpose at the center. Because that's the only way we can truly fulfill what it means to live a Christian life and not just recite a Christian script. So the truth is you can give your money, your time, we can give our energy now and then as a means of feeling kind of good and fulfilling some kind of religious obligation. But if we did, do not give ourselves, then we are missing the one ingredient that is actually necessary to have said that we gave our lives. Now, for some of us, we've come out of our own Philippi and we've entered into Thessalonica and we're still holding our lives back and it's, it's preventing us from giving ourselves to the people in this room and giving ourselves to the city which God has called us to. And we all have our reasons. We all have them. And so many of those reasons, they sound pretty valid. I mean, 
somebody hurt you, we could pass the mic down the rows and one by one share our story about, about how people have hurt us and those things are valid and they are, they are true. Or we could talk about how maybe God disappointed us and God didn't follow through on what we thought he was going to do in our lives. And so we're, we just have this bitterness that it's hard to, to get past or these partially fulfilled desires that we just can't come to terms with. Or, or maybe you feel tired and, and the reason you feel tired is because you, you, you think that that maybe somebody has let you down, but quite often the reason we feel tired, quite often the reason that we sideline ourselves is actually just because we're malnourished. And we've stopped feasting on the vision of the gospel. Yeah. I can tell you 100% that coming out of Philippi, Paul was tired. But he never stopped feasting on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I tell you that the greatest event in human history has already happened. And you and I have the privilege of getting to spend and be spent for the sake of people knowing about what, has, what God has done for humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So even when we're tired. Is there a willingness in us to keep feasting on the gospel in order that we would go again? Some of us are so stuck living in the past of Philippi that we actually even haven't stopped to notice that God brought us into Thessalonica. And you're still in Philippi in your head. But I want to encourage you tonight, open your eyes and say, wow, God was faithful and God got me out. And here I am now in Thessalonica, just like Paul was in Thessalonica. And you know what happened to Paul in Thessalonica, don't you? He had to flee in the middle of the night because of the persecution that rose against him there. And so he went down the road and he chose to go again for the gospel in Berea. But he was chased out of Berea too. So he chose to go down the road and go again for the gospel in Athens. But they mocked him in Athens. And so he went down the road one more time and came to a place called Corinth. And there in Corinth, Acts 18, verses 9 to 11, says that one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth a year and a half teaching them the word of God. And I just came here tonight to maybe ask the question, what if this season right now is your Corinth? What if your years of greatest fruitfulness so far are in this next stage of your life? What if the next stage of vision for Trinity Church is this next stage that we're entering into our years of greatest harvest, greatest fruitfulness today because we decided not to give up but to go again for the gospel. I know that we've had our share of cuts and scrapes and bruises and downright significant trials and hardships. But Romans 8.18, what a perspective. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And that's what we do, isn't it? We compare. We look at the glory and then we compare it to what we've gone through and we let what we've gone through beat out the glory so we stay stuck when we should be moving ahead and going again for the gospel. Right. Or we get distracted and we fall for the, the lure of the glory of the world. 
which is fool's gold. The real glory is in being a fool for Christ. The glory that God has for you is nothing like the glory that the world has for you. It's way less shiny, but it's way more fulfilling. And Paul even talks about the glory. He says, what is our glory? What is our joy? It's you. When God's people are our glory and our joy, it will constantly move us to make them our mission in life. And when people are your mission, glory and joy will be your reward. But the inverse of that is also true. That when ourselves become our own mission, depression, meaninglessness, and emptiness are our reward. Psychologists talk about this. I hear Jordan Peterson talk about it all the time. God bless that wonderful man. He talks about from a psychological perspective that thinking about yourself psychologically is literally the same as being depressed. What happens in your brain when you are caught up thinking about you is no different clinically than if you were anxious, worried, and depressed. It's almost like we were designed be caught up not with ourselves but with the glory of God and what he wants to do in the lives of the people that he has placed us around. Have you suffered hardship that's caused you to hold back your life? Have you decided to just do your thing and build your life and operate on the fringe of the church? It's time to go again and it's not burden. It's blessing. It's glory and joy. What are you waiting for? There's no better life than a life that is wrapped up in making much of the name of Jesus and coming alongside other people and pointing them to him. Your soul is designed to be satisfied with eternal things. It's designed to be built upon an eternal rock. Every other foundation that we build our lives upon is absolutely going to let us down. Every promise that the world has to offer is false advertising. No business making promises to you in the first place, but promise they do and let us down every time. Why not come to the King of Kings who is a sure thing who is a solid rock, who is an unfailing foundation and build our lives upon him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let all the other things be taken care of by his very capable hands. Friends, if he's loved himself for all of eternity and he's never needed to learn how to love, that means that he doesn't need lessons in loving you. He's never not known how to love. He's never not known how to be a blessing. So if he's faithful unto himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can trust that he can be perfectly faithful and loving and kind and generous and gracious to every single one of us. 
Let's talk about some application really quick, and then I'll land this plane. Band, do you guys want to come make some noise? Please fill this awkward silence. Hopefully this message has been helpful. I'll just take your silences like you're taking it in, like it's really touching you. Peter says, the end of all things is near. That's a whole other message on eschatology. We'll just move past that. Okay, so. <laughs> and then he, he tells us to do four things. So this is your application. Because you might hear this message and go, well, I'm not a pastor. Or I'm not a preacher. And that's okay. There's, there's still application for every single one of us in this room for what it looks like to give not just the gospel, but our whole lives. To go again and again and again for the sake of making him known. Paul's context was being an apostle and he lived his life fulfilling that context of what God had called him to do. You have each got a specific context for your life and I can't, I can't speak to that tonight because I don't know your story, but I can talk about four things that every single one of us in the body of Christ absolutely are called to do as made clear in the scripture. Peter says it like this. Number one, I want you to pray alertly. That's the first thing that Peter tells us to do. Pray alertly. The fact that this is the first thing tells us that prayer is the seedbed from which every single good thing grows. Yeah. That the church of Jesus Christ still today must be a people of prayer. I love the way that Peter says it. I want you to be alert and of sober mind. Why? So that you may argue. Why? So that you may criticize. Why? So that you may judge. Why? So that you may, so that you may separate. No, no, no. Why? So that you may pray. I love that. I want you to be thinking clearly, to have the lights on your mind turned on so that you may be a people of prayer. Prayer is still our first calling as Christians because prayer is how we get to commune with God. And when we come to him, we don't come as a, as a person who is marred by all of our sin and our blemish. We come in the name of Jesus before the throne of grace so we can come boldly to receive grace and obtain mercy in every single time of need. Woe unto us if we neglect the ministry of prayer in the throne room of God when something impossible talking to the God of the Most High Universe has been made possible to the church. We should be found as a people in the private room of prayer every single day of our lives. I'm sorry, I just got passionate. God is above everything. He's what you call transcendent. Now you can't get to a transcendent being unless the transcendent being makes a way for you to get to him. That way is called prayer. So Christians should never be guilty of lackluster prayer lives. Fumbling prayer lives, fine. Figuring out how to pray, great. Admitting that we all stink at prayer, 100%. But at least coming to the place of prayer and stringing together what words we can to say, God, we need you to act in our church, in our city, in my family, in my nation, in my neighbor's life, and in my life. And Peter says, do that alertly. In other words, be switched on in terms of what God's doing in His redemptive plan. How the enemy prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour. Be aware of 
what the enemy's trying to do. Don't be naive as a Christian, but pray as somebody who's alert and be watchful for breakthrough. Now, because of this, our prayer life should mostly consist of what we got, want God to do in other people's lives. A lot of us, we don't pray for others because we don't remember others. That's because we have it backwards. It's those that you pray for that you'll then learn to remember. For me right now, it's a woman named Rachel. I've never met Rachel. Don't know her face. Couldn't tell you anything about her except that Rachel has leukemia and her children go to my children's school. So when I hear that Rachel has leukemia, you better believe that Rachel is going in my list of people to pray for. And I'm gonna spend my time in morning prayer seeking the Lord for healing in Rachel's body, asking that he would have mercy on Rachel and mercy on her children and mercy on her husband and lengthen her days and stretch out her life that she may see her children's children, that she may grow into old age. Now, I don't know her, but I care for her because I've committed to praying for her. That love that I was describing to you a moment ago, the love like a mother that wants to nourish. When does a mother's love develop? Not when the baby's held in her arms. No, from the moment the mom finds out there's a child in the womb, she cares, she loves. Can I tell you that prayer is like the womb of caring for people and who you consistently pray for, you will eventually care for. Pray alertly as to what's going on in people's lives. There's one good reason to show up in a small group right there. I know you feel like you don't need it. Better believe that somebody does. And they need you to be there. If only for the sake of your prayers. G.K. Chesterton said that men did not love Rome because she was great. She was great because they had loved her same way God's love for us has informed his plan of salvation the same way our love for others should inform their future and their hope second thing that Peter says and connects perfectly to prayers loving deeply that word deeply means to love fervently intensely it's in regards to a fire let your love burn hot Tend to that fire, tend to that flame. So how do I do that? Wake up every day, so I'm gonna go again. I'm gonna go again. I know they let you down. I'm gonna go again. I know that person ticked you off. I'm gonna go again. I didn't like pastor's message last Sunday. I'm gonna go again. Keep the love burning. This is how you pick yourself up, going again and again. Peter says it's a love that covers a multitude of sins for a reason. Because people are going to sin against you. And you're going to love them anyway. And because of that, you're going to keep on trucking. The third thing Peter says is, this is a wild one. He says, I want you to offer hospitality. This, this is how you give not just the gospel, but your whole life right here. Offering hospitality. Now the New Testament 
is so clear on this subject that you and I are to be given to hospitality. That is, we are to seek out opportunity to be hospitable. Now, the NIV says that we're to offer it. But in the Greek, the word offer is not there. It's just hospitality. In other words, hospitality is inherently something to be offered. A lot of us, we're just waiting to be cornered into hospitality. And we'll start a small group. The pastor's got to awkwardly ask us 17 times before we say yes. But the moment you're cornered into hospitality, it's not hospitality anymore. It's obligation. I just came to step on some toes tonight. Just dance on them. Hope this is okay. Hospitality opens the door before it's knocked upon. Hospitality isn't just hello on a Sunday morning. It's welcome. We've been waiting for you on a Monday night. And it's a superpower. Some of you in this room, you're not, you're not short on, on non-Christian friends. you got quite a few of them. And you got your Christian friends, and never the two shall meet. And your non-Christian friends, they don't even really know you're a Christian. Going back to that whole saying, what we believe thing, the rant at the beginning. Oh, I knew it had a point and a purpose. Great. I just connected it into the message. It's an art, not a science. And what you got to understand is that hospitality is your best friend. Is it possible that you this year could see more people get saved as a result of you personally than you ever have in all of your years today simply because you decided that these two groups of friends are gonna be friends with one another? And I'm gonna talk to my Christian friends over here and say, hey, I'm gonna start a small group. I'm gonna invite all my non-Christian friends this is a coup, just to be clear. We are in on this together and our mission is getting them out of hell and into heaven. I hope that it's important enough to you that you don't need to be privately needed by all your non-Christian friends, keeping them to yourself. When we can get engaged in a group project and say, as for us, we're not going to let people just drown in the depths. We're going to jump in after them just like God jumped in after us. Not going to toss them any sorry lifesaver. We're getting in the water and we're pulling them to shore. This hospitality is so basic and so beautiful. Peter says, because it needs to be said, do it without grumbling so practical. The Bible's so practical. Some say the Bible's not helpful. No, you're not helpful. <laughs> Last thing Peter says is, is this. I want you to serve faithfully. Each of you should use whatever gift you have. What do you got? Use it to to, to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. That's ministry. Ministry sounds impressive, but no, ministry is servanthood. 
And it's the calling, oh, just, if I could just make one thing clear, it is the calling and the command to every single part of the body. Just as prayer and love and hospitality are fundamental to keeping in step with the kingdom, so also is serving one another in the body of Christ. It's not an extra, it's a given. And the Holy Spirit has given, Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit has given every single Christian at least one spiritual gift with which they are meant to serve. Now we can get so accustomed to pointing out problems and pointing out holes and, and criticizing what's not working and we forget that we're meant to be the answer to the problem because if you don't, who will? If you don't serve, who's going to do it? If you don't give, who's going to do it? If you don't teach the Bible in Sunday school to those new believers, who will? If you don't prophesy, who will? If you don't heal the sick, who will? If you don't work miracles, who will? If you don't have faith that moves mountains, then who will? If you don't lead, then who will? If you don't administrate, who's going to do it? If you don't take time to get a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge from God, who else is going to do it? If you don't show the mercy of God to that person who clearly doesn't deserve it, who else is going to do it? If you don't evangelize the lost at your workplace, who else? If you don't do the good works that God prepared for you since before time began, then who else will do them? So, well, I've done it before. I know. It's time to go again. But it didn't work the last time. I know it's time to go again. It wasn't perfect before. I know it's time to go again. Well, they didn't appreciate me. I know it's time to go again. I didn't get the outcome I wanted. I don't know if I'm up for it. It is time to go again. Trinity Church, if you receive the word tonight, I need you to stand up on your feet and clap your hands and give God a praise like you're hearing his call for the first time and you are ready and willing to go again. This is the word that God gave for me for you all this year. It started like this. You are my people. Have I not borne you anew through the Spirit? Have I not raised you with the strength of a father and nourished you with the love of a mother? Have I not marked you off as my own, made you holy and blameless? Therefore, throw off the chains of intimidation and fear. Walk by faith into your next season of fruitfulness. Don't be steered by the fear of man, for that will take you down roads that are not my own. Be led only by the fear of God, for that is the road that leads to life. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would take tonight all of my yelling and my spitting. Take these words, Lord, and if any one of them are not in alignment with what you want, then let them be as straw. But if God at all you have spoken tonight, then let those words be living and let them be abiding. They would be planted deep into the soil of our hearts. They would produce fruitfulness 
in our lives, not for the sake of self, but for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of this church. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus, days ahead be marked by fruitfulness. Days ahead be marked by salvation. Days ahead be marked by not just one, but two locations of this church thriving and multiplying. Seeing souls saved, people and lives transformed, marriages restored, drug addicts completely set free, pornography addictions completely being abandoned, Lord God. Let miracles mark this church, Father God, not unto our glory, but unto your glory, Lord Jesus. And if any one of us admit tonight that we're weary, then help us by your Holy Spirit to feast again on the glory of the gospel. Father, that we would gladly spend and be spent for the sake of the souls of the people to whom you have called us. tuning in today. If you'd like to dive deeper into today's message, go to trinitydallas.com forward slash sermons to receive your copy of the notes. If today's message encouraged you, do someone else a favor and share it with them. Also be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. A special shout out to all those who partner with us through their giving. Your contributions have enabled us to touch the lives of people in our community as well as around the globe. Visit us at trinitydallas.com forward slash give to partner with what God is doing through Trinity Dallas.